And this in some ways will be a, uh, like a try again lesson. Um, so last week I, I referenced this passage in a sermon. Uh, some of you who have been here for a long time may have noticed this without maybe thinking about it this way, but sometimes what I do in sermons, which is not a good thing necessarily, so I'll put like points or a passage into a point that really should be its own sermon. And then trying to make those mini sermon points within another point uh, just tends to, from a communicator standpoint, and I'm sure from a listener standpoint, uh, turn out a bit messy. So I think last week uh, we referenced this passage, but this is such an important passage that I've been thinking about so much. I mentioned uh, last week, I've been wanting to do a sermon on this lesson for so long. Uh, I think about it all the time, and I think just the the utility of this passage is, is just so relevant and it's so needed. Uh, and so I thought it might be helpful uh, not waiting uh, be too long beyond the last lesson to go back and touch on the ideas that were very briefly but inadequately mentioned and give them more time and more attention. So I hope that if uh, things were pointed out that um, seemed helpful but were still kind of a little muddy and confusing what to do with it or what to think about it. I hope that this lesson will give uh, greater clarity to that. Uh, I do want to speak to Miguel really quick uh, before moving on uh, in Espanol about the nature of the lesson, and then I'll, I'll give a, a little more introductory points after that. Uh, so I think Miguel might have stepped outside, so I won't do that. <laughs> I don't see him sitting in the audience right now. So we'll, we'll skip that. Uh, but before moving on, I want to kind of, again, still in terms of introduction, introduce just the general idea of the importance of joy. You'll notice in chapter 11, verse 9, this is addressed to a young man, and I think by consequence, youth in general. Uh, but I just want to stress something that I think is very important after reading these passages here that I've got on the board. You don't need to turn in your Bible to these places. Uh, but Jesus himself said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And then in Philippians 4, 4, there is something said here that is actually said throughout the letter to the Philippians. This is like the anthem of the letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, and this is just like a very small condensed sampling of something that is both encouraged, spoken about, and even directly commanded again and again and again and again throughout the New Testament. But taking into account even just this last passage in 1 Thessalonians, have you ever thought about this passage in terms of this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus? Have you ever thought about the fact that it is God's will for you to live a life that is fulfilling, that is abounding with joy, where you are always rejoicing and where in everything you are giving thanks? Have you thought that that is actually that is God's will for you. And that if you're not rejoicing always, 
If you are not in everything seeing reason to be thankful, then that is an area that we need to grow in. Why is this important? I I mentioned this a little bit last week. Um, Maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can't. And by the way, I'm going to be repeating um, really a bunch of things that I said last week, but kind of expounding on them a little bit more. But a misunderstanding that I've had that I think is fairly common is we associate God more exclusively with what we think to be religious activity. So I think about God in relation to Bible study. I think about God in terms of he is who I think about when I go to worship assemblies on Sunday or Wednesday. Uh, I think about God in terms of his relationship to when I am praying or praying with others or reading my Bible. Uh, I really hope this lesson will open up an entirely new world of thinking about God if that kind of describes the way you think about God. Uh, So again, we think about God in terms of he is someone that we serve. We do very specific activities that we connect with him, but outside of that, nothing. And so another misconception I think that we have that I've dealt with, and again, I think, I think this is an extremely inadequate, unhealthy, broken view of God, that I have God here, and all of the joy and, enjo- and, all of the joy and enjoyment of life is something that cannot connect with God, that does not connect with God, And unfortunately, I think sometimes it can seem like God and enjoyment are actually opposing concepts that are at war with each other and cannot be joined together. Uh, This is simply not a biblical concept. And to see God, again, in in those ways where God is separated from joy or enjoyment is an extremely inadequate, very unhealthy view of who God is that betrays fundamentally a theme of who God is through scripture. Uh, And where does this begin? It begins in youth. So Ecclesiastes 11 uh, particularly verse, verse 9 and 10, really gives the task to a young man to really seek out a healthier view of God, associating God even with joy and fulfillment in life. So now I want to read Ecclesiastes 11. And I'm going to start in verse 7 again, but I do just in terms of something that I'll reference and I think is important to the context. I'm going to start in 11.7 and I'm going to read through 12 verse 8. Uh, But again, the lesson will be primarily on 9 and 10. Ecclesiastes 11, The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to become, that is to come, will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. And let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So, remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, the day when the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop, The grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through the windows grow dim. The doors in the street are shut, as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the capperberry is ineffective. 
For man goes to his eternal home while, my, while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. All right, so going back to verse 9 and 10 of chapter 11, uh, Solomon as really a conclusive instruction to the book of Ecclesiastes, taking into account everything he said before, one of the grand conclusions is simply rejoice, young man, in your youth. A lot of the instructions here can sound dangerous, but what I want to emphasize here is what Solomon is saying is God seeks to give protect, and encourage the joy and fulfillment of youth. And I would argue even the fulfillment and the joy of life in general, but at least for our focus on this passage, the joy and the fulfillment of youth. Uh, Solomon is encouraging following your heart, which sounds counterproductive and ungodly. He's encouraging following the desires of your eyes, which sounds counterproductive spiritually and ungodly. But really it's the latter statement of verse nine that qualifies that. These are statements built on conclusions already made through the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to point out a couple briefly, but Solomon is not assuming by this point that we are reading worldly mindedness into these instructions. He's presuming we are reading healthy, spiritual, God-focused mentalities by the time we get to this point in the book. Go back to chapter one. And again, I just want to point out some conclusions Solomon has already gotten to that set a context for these instructions made at the very end of the book. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And I'm just going to point out a few samplings here, verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And think about like the Bible class in 1 John, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and how vain those are. When he says under the sun, he's talking about life as it is disassociated from God, just life as it is in a worldly plane. And what does he find? It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. Again, that's disassociated from thinking about God or bringing it to God. All is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So Solomon here thinks about pleasure. You know, can I find true fulfillment or a real joy just from pleasure? I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? And then go down to verse 17 as he kind of reflects on, uh, rather not verse 17, uh, verse 11, as he's talked about, you know, seeking all different kinds of pleasure. He had all the wealth a person could ever have, all the access to resources as a man. He had a lot of access to women. Uh, he mentions that throughout this context uh, in verse 8. But verse 11, thus I considered all my activities, all his achievements, all of the pleasure, considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Now look further at verse 17. So I hated life 
For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. And I want you to look further in the same chapter, verse 24 and 25. Uh, Solomon, throughout this book, it's like he has all of these doors open for joy and fulfillment. And it's like he's walking through each door. Is joy and fulfillment here? Okay, no, let's shut that door. Is it here? No, okay, let's shut that door. But every once in a while in Ecclesiastes, he goes through the door where God is found in life. And he always there finds real joy and real fulfillment. So look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is, is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? The idea is God is the one who gives life meaning and fulfillment. God is the one who equips us to truly enjoy life in a way that's not destructive or deceptive. We'll get to that later. And so what Solomon finds is ultimately this conclusion, we've arrived back at what's on the board, that ultimately God seeks to give life joy and fulfillment. God seeks to protect real, substantial joy and fulfillment. God even encourages finding joy and fulfillment in life in ways that, again, when you read Ecclesiastes 11, sound strange and very risky even. Again, Solomon is assuming we've come to these conclusions, considered these conclusions, and we are not thinking about a worldly-minded application of these principles. So with that, uh, back to Ecclesiastes 11, he mentions to rejoice. And I want to clarify here that rejoice is not the same as enjoy. Uh, it's not wrong to enjoy life, but rejoice takes the principle of enjoyment an important step further. Uh, I think maybe a different word that is somewhat equivalent to rejoice is to celebrate, right? So you think about celebrating a birthday. There's something deliberate about that. There's a focus to that, right? Uh, so to rejoice is to be deliberate. It's not just to go through life enjoying and having a good time. To rejoice through youth in the way that Solomon is advocating is to deliberately be grateful to God, even rejoice before God in gifts that he is giving, joys that he is giving to direct that in a deliberate way to a source, to God who gives those things. Again, chapter two, who is able to eat or have enjoyment without him? Everything that makes life good and enjoyable is ultimately from God. A verse I don't have on the board here that I do want to reference before we get into this point, James 1, 16 and 17, you don't need to turn your Bibles there. But there James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, do not be deceived. Every good thing given and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing, every single good thing, Every perfect gift comes from God. And James urges us, don't be deceived into thinking otherwise. So everything that is good that we enjoy has a source. God is the giver of all of those things. But the thing is, God is jealous to protect desire. Desire is good. So look at Ecclesiastes 11. We all come from sin, and so we recognize we have abused our desire. We have taken our desire into wrong places, sinful places. But look what he says. Follow the impulses of your heart in the middle of verse 9. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desire of your eyes. 
Is desire a bad thing? Is impulse, now the word impulse may sound bad, but is impulse an inherently bad thing? I want to illustrate this with Proverbs chapter 25. Turn back to Proverbs 25. I would argue that God gave us desire. God even gave us impulse. That can easily become a bad thing, but God is able to guide our desire, even our impulse. God is able to protect those things. God is able to keep them pure and maintain purity and even bring us back to having pure and good desires. Uh, I'm going to bring up some Proverbs that might not make sense without explanation, so I assure you we'll explain what the point is. Proverbs 25, verse 16. Have you found honey? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess and vomit it up. Is honey poisonous? No. Does honey have a very useful, good utility? Yes. Well, in this context, it gets to a point where at the end of the proverb, the person is vomiting it up. So can honey, which is a good thing, which is even a very helpful thing, delicious thing. Can honey, which is a good thing, be so indulged in, so excessively eaten, that it actually becomes a bad thing? And not only does it become a bad thing, you lose, you know, if you're vomiting it up, not to be gross, you're losing what you just ate. So you're losing every benefit you would have gained, and you're getting sick from it. So not only is it a loss, it's actually destroying you and becoming self-destructive. I would argue that many things that God has given that can be good and should be good are like that. God has given us desires that can be good, but what Ecclesiastes is emphasizing, know that God will bring you into judgment, is God, when we think about him, we are able then to truly invest in things in a good and pure way. Things are able to be good instead of deceptive and self-destructive. I want to illustrate this with just some examples. Uh, hopefully this isn't too redundant. Someone growing up wants to enjoy sports. Let's say like Jim, they really enjoy tennis. Can someone who is young learn to play tennis and enjoy tennis? Can they learn to play another sport or even watch sports and enjoy them? But can that become something they invest in too excessively? and it become counterproductive, especially ultimately in the relationship with God. Someone likes math, science. I know a brother in Alabama who works with NASA and he's a very scientifically minded person, but he is a very focused kingdom first Christian. Can someone enjoy math and science and it be a good and pure thing even as a career? Can someone overinvest and it become dangerous and counterproductive in the relationship with God? You like music and playing even maybe a certain instrument. I think about Devin, who's moved to Atlanta. Devin really enjoyed playing the saxophone, and he was really, really good at it. Uh, he was in a jazz band in high school. He really enjoyed it. Uh, could he do that and maintain a kingdom-first attitude and just enjoy it and invest in it, play it, even at concerts? Absolutely. Now, Devin realized, because of his love for God, as he enjoyed that, that pursuing a career as a musician with a saxophone would potentially end up contradicting the priority that God calls him to place on the kingdom. So Devin chose not to pursue that as a career 
But does, joy, but, but does Devin still enjoy jazz music? Absolutely. You like art. Eva loves art. Can a person enjoy art, invest in art, become very good at it, and still it be a good thing? Again, can it be taken too far? You want to travel. You enjoy going to places. You want to develop a hobby. You want to get interested in something. Can you enjoy those things and not just enjoy them, but be thankful to God for the gift he gives to enjoy those things? The problem is we often disassociate those things that we enjoy from God and fail to turn and recognize that he is giving us those things that we enjoy as gifts to rejoice in, to enjoy life. Again, it's not wrong to enjoy things within a measure that maintains boundaries with God. Uh, It can become idolatrous when we actually begin to disassociate it from God and no longer recognize God is the one giving those things. Uh, Not to belabor the point, but I thought about this even with food. Did God make food enjoyable? Did God even make food emotionally comforting? (laughs) Can someone find too much comfort in food where that is like they're idle when they have any stress and they just invest in it way too much? But I'll tell you this, and maybe this will sound weird, maybe wrong, but think about it. Eva has times where she's struggling emotionally, and there's times where eating something will really comfort her. What we've learned to do is we thank God for that. We thank God that he's made food that can be something comforting. That's not to say we get all of our comfort from food, but we're certainly thankful that God has given us things to enjoy and things to find comfort in that he's given us as gifts. Not that we idolize that, but we are certainly thankful for the benefit it gives. I want to think about this in a couple of other ways with a couple of illustrations. I think it's just very important to think about this. We have a swimming pool at our apartment complex. There's a shallow end and there's a deep end. In the shallow end, which is like two to three feet, it says no diving. Now, that warning that's telling people not to dive in two feet of water, is that rule hindering the enjoyment people can have at the pool? Or is it protecting the enjoyment people can have at the pool? What if somebody dives in two feet of water? And I mean full-fledged, like they really dive. Are they going to be having fun anymore? Is that going to enhance the enjoyment people have there? See, so remembering that God will bring us into judgment for what we do. God is not trying to diminish the joy we have in life. God's not just someone we serve and then everything else has nothing to do with God. God is trying to protect our joy from crossing boundaries where ultimately, as you see on the board, it can become deceptively self-destructive. Another illustration with this. John and Gianna came to the pool uh, a couple weeks ago. We all swam, and they brought Ezekiel to the pool. And Ezekiel loves water. And Ezekiel, as a baby who doesn't know better, kept trying to push off of John in the pool in water that was well above his head level. He just kept trying to push off. Now, John keeps pulling him back in and even disciplining him, telling him, no, stay with me, stay with me. Does Ezekiel, as a baby, appreciate the danger of water in his environment? No, he doesn't. Was John hindering Ezekiel's joy by constantly pulling him in and uh, even disciplining him? Absolutely not. What was John doing as a good father? Protecting the joy that Ezekiel was having in the pool. When God gives us boundaries, when he says, bring it to me, let me be close to you in those things, have your desires, have your ambitions, just don't forget about me. Don't 
coal away from me. Why is God encouraging that? Because if Ezekiel were to pull away from John and John not rescue him, that child would drown in the water. God doesn't want us to enjoy life and drown in the process. A lot of this just comes to trusting who God is as a very loving, very good father. And the idea of this is we need to learn to think outside of the present to truly enjoy the present. We have to think outside of our passions to really enjoy our passions. We need to think outside of our ambitions to really enjoy our ambitions. We have to think outside the moment to truly enjoy the moment. It's exactly what we see through Ecclesiastes chapter 11. You look at the end of verse 10, childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And God doesn't say, you know, you're going to grow up and you're going to need to be a very responsible adult. So you better prepare early and be as responsible as possible and hoard in as much responsibility and stress yourself out. God says, enjoy your youth. Just enjoy it. You know, enjoy everything you can. Remember that God will bring you into judgment, but God is not trying to suppress your joy uh, as is often thought about. And I mentioned this last week, but I think this is so critical. The long-term result of rejoicing in this way is love, trust, and willful sacrificial service. Look at Proverbs 29, 21. Again, this proverb without explanation may not seem to make any sense at all. Uh, Proverbs 29, 21. He who pampers his slave from childhood will in the end find him to be a son. In the proverb, in verse 21, does a slave deserve to be pampered like a son? Is that something that they are owed by, let's say, in the context here, their master? No, it's not. But what is the long-term accumulation of this favor eventually result in? You'll, in the end, find him to be a son in the end. Uh, I want to illustrate this personally. When uh, I was younger, you know, I mentioned last week, I wasted my youth and teenage years. Uh, I knew God. I was a Christian, at least in terms of I knew the truth. I had believed the truth. I'd been baptized for the remission of my sins. But over time, I learned to find my joy and my refuge in the world. And I was awful to my parents. I was disobedient to them. I caused them great grief through my teenage years. And ultimately, that culminated in complete apostasy when I left the household. Anyway, when I came to my senses, when I came to my senses, a part of coming to my senses was looking back and realizing just how much my parents had done for me and realizing just how much care my parents had given me. I remember times where in my memory, I know that they could see that there was turmoil in my heart, turmoil in my life, and they went out of their way financially, emotionally, out of their way with time to try to help me be better and feel better, and I threw it away. I would often throw it in their face, and I would make them feel worse as a result. When I remember these things, how good they were to me, how hard they tried to bless me and be a blessing to me, how does that affect me now as I, in a better context, can keep better record of what they had really done for me and the enormity of what they had done for me when I certainly did not deserve it and was not repaying them for it? The respect that I have for my parents is enormous. And when I see them, they don't have to order me to do things for them, to help with the yard or do things around the house that need to get done. They don't need to command me like a slave to do those things. 
because out of sheer gratitude for what they've given me through my childhood, it's simply something I want to do. Uh, how much more in our relationship with God? If somebody can learn through their youth the discipline of rejoicing in the Lord and realizing the enormity of the gifts that he is giving when we certainly don't deserve it, as we think of Jesus on the cross, as we begin to mature in realizing how much he's doing in relation to our sin and our weakness and our inadequacy, as our thankfulness grows and builds, think, how will that affect a person's view of God in the end? How motivated will that person be to serve God not thinking that he's just a being way up there somewhere that's commanding things to be done and he'll punish me if I don't. Think about the enormous view of grace, the great depth of understanding this child would have of the grace given and the obligation they would feel, not because of it being domineered over them, but an obligation by grace to serve and love God. This kind of childhood results in someone who has the healthiest, fullest devotion to God. So that leads us to verse 10, how God protects the heart. Joy and the heart go hand in hand. But one of the most important things about youth, learning to have joy, joy associated with God, you know, not idolizing the world, not finding your joy in the world separated from God, but also learning how to handle emotional turmoil, which is inevitable. I want you to think about your childhood. How did you handle emotional turmoil in your childhood and teenage years? And if you feel like you did not handle those things well, can you trace how that's impacted you into your adult life? Uh, I can see those things for myself. Uh, I want to read verse 10 and we'll talk about it more again uh, since it's been a while since reading the verses. So, so again, as he's talking about joy and rejoicing in your youth, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. God teaches us not just how to work through grief and anger, but how to completely heal from them to the point where those things do not fester in our hearts. The idea is this. This is something that I, I, I am more in tune with the older I get. And I certainly can look back and see it very clearly that festering guilt, unresolved guilt, festering hurt, trauma, anger, frustration, irritation, when those things are let to settle, it's not that we won't experience those things, but when they settle and when they take root into our hearts, they poison our hearts. They poison our attitude toward God. They poison our attitude toward people. Festering guilt, hurt, and anger. God knows they are poison to the goodness of a young person's heart, the tenderness of a young person's heart. But God seeks to protect it and to heal it. So I want to illustrate this personally. Uh, again, some things I may have said last week. But when I was younger, I certainly did not learn this or care about this. Uh, I even remember when I was six or seven, you know, there was a lot of anger in my household that my dad is well grown out of now, especially because of God's help. He's actually in his adult life removed grief and anger from his heart. But when I was younger, he was still a new Christian and there was a lot of anger in my house. And when I was six or seven, 
I remember when I would get frustrated, I would punch myself. I would punch myself when I would get frustrated. I would break things. Uh, like if I had a Game Boy and I lost a game, I would punch my Game Boy and actually try to break its screen. Because I would just get, I'd get so frustrated, right? And as I got older uh, and other things began to settle in my heart, uh, frustration, uh, grief, and other traumas that I was letting just settle within me, where did I seek refuge? I obviously was not finding it in the Lord, so I found it in the world. And I became deeply emotionally attached to the world, deeply emotionally attached to entertainment, to the point where my heart was so addicted to entertainment as an emotional attachment, uh, I became pleasure-oriented. Everything about my life was pleasure-oriented, and you can imagine where that led to pornography addiction, uh, addiction to partying and alcohol and other things like that, uh, which, looking back, I can trace to the fact that I did not apply this verse. I let anger and grief settle deeply in my heart, and instead of removing those things, I kept them, and that caused me then to seek refuge where there was no refuge, where there was no healing, and only became deeply self-destructive. So again, it's, it's not that we don't deal with these things. It's that God teaches us how to work with these things. God designed children to have tender hearts, good hearts. This makes them vulnerable to being traumatized in secret, in hidden ways that are not easily noticed. There's so much here for parents. You know, if you do not get a handle on your emotional turmoil, certainly your kids will not learn that very well either. And although your kids in their youth may not know how to articulate to you, hey, mom, hey, dad, this traumatizes me and really actually hurts me deeply. Kids can't articulate trauma, but they can certainly experience trauma. And whether or not we realize it, oftentimes those things are extremely hidden and secretive. So the task oftentimes is on parents to know better. Parents need to know better. We need to learn where and how we seek refuge in emotional turmoil. Because this ultimately determines the trajectory of our love, our ambitions, and our passions. I've talked and studied with a fair amount of homeless people in Savannah by now and before living in Savannah as well. And what I oftentimes find is if someone is homeless because of their own decisions, not because life just happened to be rough for them and things out of their control. But if somebody is homeless because of drug addiction, because of broken relationships, where did that begin? How did that start? Their childhood. That they experienced things that they never learned to deal with. They were hurt by things, upset by things that they let consume them. And it just put them on a spiral out of control that determined the trajectory of their future and getting out of a heart so tangled can sometimes be so grievously difficult even when you are teaching someone directly from the Bible what God's solution is to those problems. Where we learn to find emotional refuge in our turmoil determines so much of the traje trajectory of how we love, who we love, the nature of our passions, and especially whether or not we develop a very real passion for God. Again, not just a church we go to or that I believe information about the Bible and I want to do what's right, but having a passion for God is built 
on these principles, young or old. So again, this is something that uh, parents, I think, really need to take note of. Uh, your kids growing up are going to struggle with these things. Sin is going to enter into your kid's life. They're going to be exposed to the world. And what the world portrays is there is definitely refuge to be found in the world, although that is very deceptive. It is certainly what they will see is people enjoying life. They will find counsel from worldly sources. And again, parents need to be able to understand your kids will struggle emotionally. God has solutions. You have to get your emotions under control first to know where to deal with that, where to direct it, and how to deal with that. So I want to end the lesson with Isaiah 57 and just give some final points on this from this passage. I just didn't have room on the board to fit this. But it's Isaiah 57. Uh, It's verse 15 and then uh, 18 and 19. 15, 18, and 19. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far, to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. One of the most consistent ways God presents himself through the Bible is as a refuge for the afflicted and the oppressed, as a healer of the brokenhearted, as someone who revives those who are crushed in spirit. Is that how you connect with God and see God? Or is it, again, just as someone you serve at times when you are doing specific religious activities? People who love God the most of the Bible, they got this. The Psalms, such an enormous book, is about people who understood that God was their refuge in turmoil. The Psalms demonstrates righteous people seeking God as an emotional refuge through life's problems. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as he talks about God as a God of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, mentions then that he also, through that comfort, equips us to comfort others with the same comfort with which we've received comfort from God. We need to understand that these are just real struggles we face in the world that children will certainly face as they grow up. And the obligation, again, as so many young families are here, parents need to be so acutely aware of this. Uh, I talked to an elder who I respect about this lesson and kind of asked his counsel about how he thinks about these verses. He has kids who are grown up, who are out of his house, who are faithful and have godly families now, but he talked about this as hypotheticals. He said if he had kids, for instance, he would try to help them as they became teenagers, as they approached being teenagers. He would try to be very aware of how they deal with anger and how anger is impacting them. He talked about how if he had many kids and if they were older, he would not want the oldest kid to feel like they're responsible for all of the, older ki- all the other kids in the family. 
that he wouldn't pressure them to get a job too early, but would rather encourage them to enjoy freedom from responsibility in other good, healthy, godly ways and just enjoy the time that they have. He mentioned, for instance, if he had a son who was a teenager growing up and really wanted to see Ireland, for example, he just, he brought up Ireland. He said he would try to use his resources to send him to Ireland to help him enjoy that and experience that. The idea is when children have lives that are full of joy associated with God, they will grow up to love the God who has given them so much joy. Even I don't have kids, but I've determined my life would have been so different if I would have applied these verses in my youth and cared about them. And I've determined that if God gives even I kids, I will strive to relentlessly help my children understand the principles of these verses, to read these to my kids, to talk about them to my kids, to pray about these things for my kids. Children are so vulnerable in teenage years of such a vulnerable time filled with so much turmoil emotionally. Remember Ecclesiastes 11, 9 and 10. Remember that God seeks to give, protect, and encourage pure joy. That's it.